The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters. Good day. You are listening to Ability Radio. I am one of your hosts, Amelia Headley Lamont of the Disability Rights Center of the Virgin Islands. And um, since we recently have the passage of Transfer Day, we have a very special guest who is an educator and an historian by the name of Lenny James. Good day, Mr. James. Good morning, <laughs> Amelia. How are you being? I'm good. I'm good. Let us uh, make it clear that uh, Mr. James and I um, had a relationship, <gasps> so to speak. We worked together at the Disability <sighs> Rights Center of the Virgin Islands. <laughs> so if there's an air of familiarity, that's why. And I'm also very fond of him as, as a person who's such a good-hearted human being, but also a font of knowledge, and that's why we have you here today. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I hope I can impart something. I'm sure you will. First of all, your name is Ulmont, right? Lenny Ulmont James, is that Lawrence how you pronounce it? Ulmont Lenhart James Jr. Okay, all right. How would you define yourself? What? How would you self-identify? In terms of? As a human being. I try to be kind, I try to be good, and... Trick question. Trick question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Typically, one's, one would ask, okay, how do you self-identify? Where, where are you from? What, what are your... I am a Virgin Islander, born and raised Virgin Islander. Regardless where I have lived, I am a Virgin Islander. And I guess, if anything, it's a Frederick Stetter now, because that's the one place I don't ever want to leave. Okay. No, that's understandable. Now, you um, had a very interesting upbringing. Tell us about it. Well, I was born and born and raised in the island of St. Thomas. My father was from a Crucian family. My mother was African American, so um, that began sort of the dichotomy of uh, my life. I was a half breed. What does and, that mean, half breed? Well, part West Indian, part African American. So, um, to my African American cousins, we we're foreigner. Mm. <laughs> to my Crucian uh, Virgin Islands cousins, you know, you're a half-breed because mm -hmm. you're not 100% Virgin Islander. Your mother and father are not from the Virgin Islands. One was from the mainland, so I'm half. Okay, well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> but I am a Virgin Islander, proud Virgin Islander. Well, tell me, your, tell me about your dad. What did your father do, and what was his name? Uh, I'm Olmont L. James Jr., so he's Olmont L. James Sr. He's the one that set up the division of personnel. So um, when I was growing up in the 50s in St. Thomas, um, I was in and out of government buildings on Government Hill because we lived in Kongensgaard. I can't even say it in German, in Danish, oh God. And so I was familiar with um, the government house, the lieutenant governor's building, um, all of those are places I used to run. The division of personnel was in a gray building across from Hotel 1829. It used to be the former German embassy. Hmm. And they had the most beautiful mob, uh, mahogany staircase coming down. I was so sorry to hear the building burn. But that was the most beautiful mahogany stairs I've ever seen. And I used to play there every day. 
So um, my father was not one that um, embraced the political parties, mm -hmm. and he was sort of um, non-secretary with the the political, and he had gone as far as he could without declaring some allegiance to some party. But I can understand people being, you know, concerned. Are you with us? Or, you know, which party are you in? Or what do you identify? He tried to be neutral. He had very, very high ideals. So um, he got an offer from the U.S. State Department uh, to work with them in the Agency for International Development. And at the age of 14, I left my beautiful home of St. Thomas to live overseas. And that was the beginning of an international experience that I enjoyed, I treasured, and sometimes I deeply resented because you're being pulled and pushed and I'm in between um, former colonized, former colonies that were now independent nations. And then I'm going to school in Europe where the color of my skin stopped traffic. It took me a few months to realize that the color of my skin was stopping traffic. They had never seen a Negro. And the two and a half years I was in Rome, I saw three Americans, Negroes, African-Americans, on Via Veneto. I had to cross the street to shake their hand because I hadn't <laughs> because seen a, a person of color yeah, yeah. for two and a half years while I was in Rome. So Go you ahead. were part of the diplomatic corps, I mean, as a dependent, so to speak, as a teenager. So that mm -hmm. was also probably very challenging too, was it not? You carry the flag. Right. So not only do you represent yourself, your family, my home, the nation, you know, you're an American, then you know, everybody sort of looks at you different. But that was a different time. Okay, so around when, what time period are we talking about? We're talking about, about 1961. Okay. 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. 40 years ago, I heard a whisper. 61. <laughs> I think, isn't it? Dame Fauci? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, Go. so tell me where you were. Where did you visit? Where did you live? Well, um, I, lived, I went to school in Rome. Then my father was assigned to Guinea. And then... Um, now when, we probably need to identify Rome, Italy... I'm sorry, Rome, Guinea. Italy, Guinea. Uh, Conakry, Guinea, on West Africa. Okay. And then he went to Madagascar, and I was in school in Switzerland. And Madagascar is an island off the coast of... The Af east coast of Africa. Africa, right. 17 hours flying from Cairo. Okay. And I thought it was going to be like flying from New York to St. Croix, three and a half hours, so I'm very happy I'll be home in four hours and we took off, and we're going to land in Djibouti, Djibouti, and the flying time is six and a half hours. And Djibouti is near, is Djibouti on East Africa, is correct? under Egypt and above Somalia and Ethiopia. It was on, it's on the horn. And six and a half hours to get to um, Djibouti barely got us out of Egypt. Okay, so let, let's, let's backtrack okay. a little bit. Where were you living? You were living in Rome, correct? Well, I went to school in Rome. Okay. okay. And then for summer vacations, Christmas vacations, I would either go to Africa or my parents would come and we would travel. After leaving, I left Rome around the same time my father left uh, Guinea and his next assignment was Madagascar. Okay. And I was in Switzerland. Okay. And then um, I came to St. Croix to live from my exile. And um, For your exile? I didn't seem to appreciate the offerings of diplomatic life. To me, it was a false life. 
Um, I'm not going to be living in mansions and being driven and chauffeured and have a diplomatic passport for the rest of my life. It's not hereditary. Mm -hmm. So you meet wonderful people, and then two years later, you move someplace else. I'm from an island where everybody knows everybody. I've seen people, you know, the generations are around. So the concept of meeting people and never see them ever again was very, very hard for me to deal with. I was devastated when I left Madagascar because I was on my way to Howard then. And um, Howard University? Howard University, I'm sorry. For what, undergraduate or? Undergraduate. Okay. And um, then my father was assigned to Morocco. And um, I dropped out of Howard and came to St. Croix to live. It was uh, teaching that day. Elena Christian said, Elena Christian Junior High School and then Central High School. And then I started working at Hess. I worked there for about seven and a half years, got laid off, and went back to school. Went back to Howard University and got my bachelor's. And then after that, I applied to law school, got into law school, and um, came back to St. Croix. Um, after law school, and here I be. Tell us about your experience. You mentioned earlier about the colonial aspects of places where your father was assigned. Can you give us some examples of what that was like? The first assignment was Conakry, Guinea, and it was a former French colony. And when the French left, they took everything except the roads. The Guinean government turned to the United States for help, but they didn't want to help because France was an ally. And so they step backwards, we really can't step forward. I guess it's a continuation of the colonial experience in a way, I'm sorry. And um, the Guineans turned to Russia and the Russians responded immediately, but they did so badly. They sent big trucks with snow plows and they were building a radio station in Guinea, in Conakry, that would be able to broadcast to all the way to South Africa, all the way up to the Scandinavian countries. Unfortunately, Guinea is overflowing or has too much bauxite. So the soil is red. And uh, they built this um, radio station on top of a monumental deposit of iron ore or something like that. And you couldn't even hear it in Guinea couldn't even hear it in Conakry, a few miles away from the radio station. So they looked bad, and then they turned to the Americans, and then we came in, and um, the Americans came in and came with things that were productive and helpful and helped to get Guinea going. But they were very, very good in spite of having just the roads left. They really, there was a pride, there was an independence, there, there was a lot of things that were admirable about them, um, the power used to to uh, dim at night, but it wouldn't go out. And one time they had to shut it down for three days. And they told you, we'll turn it off at 12, and we'll turn it back on Sunday at such and such a time. And so they did. There was a lot of water. That was the rainy season when I was there. It started raining in May up to October. So my entire summer was spent in the rainy season, that's where I had to read a lot, and that's where I got into the books and, and, and so on. And writing and such, right? Right. So how would you compare your experience in uh, Guinea to 
let's let's look at the Virgin Islands relationship with the U.S. Ice. It was nice to be. You you are aware that you are in an independent country. I'm I'm in an independent country, and the color of my skin is the predominant color of the people in the country. And I could stand on the the on the waterfront or something like that, and inhale. And there is a difference in the air when you're a first-class citizen than when you are a second- or third-class citizen. And the independence, that, that I, I, I remember that in Madagascar, I remember that in Guinea, uh, Morocco. If I didn't open my mouth, people wouldn't know where I was from. And it was nice, in a way, to just blend in with the, the native population. There were some similarities um, between the way we live and the way we govern, the way we interact, there were similarities between West Africa and, and the Virgin Islands that um, I enjoyed. And then I was reminded I'm from a place where I'm a second or third class citizen, and here I am, first class citizen, and, and I, could in, I could see and feel and enjoy the difference. Wow. Tell me about some of those similarities that you observed. I hung around with the Liberian um, ambassador's children. Um, I don't know about similarities, but the children were very, very proud of the African heritage, and they were very, very proud that they are not descended from slaves, and that was something they would throw out at me. And the father gave me a ride home, and we were driving us, my God, this is a very nice car. What kind of car is this? Benz. Benz, what's a Benz? I was an island boy. I'm sorry, I didn't know. I didn't know anybody made cars other than the Americans, and we made the best cars in the world. No, 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 no. And he had to let me know the Benz was the best car in the world. I'd never heard of it. And um, he embraced his West Indian heritage. His grandmother or great-grandmother was one of the people that returned from either Guadeloupe or someplace that... um, went back to Africa, and he was very proud to be descended from her, but his children are claiming that they are not of any kind of enslaved descent. The, the nightclubs in Africa, the United States, the southern United States, in the West Indies, they're all the same. You have no idea where you are. I go down to Glynn, I feel that I'm almost, it's the same as the southern United States, West Coast, I mean, West Africa, East Africa. There's a similarity in our places of recreation Mm -hmm. that are just the same, regardless where you are. So if you didn't hear the accents, you you would have a hard time trying to figure out, I'm in St. Croix, I'm in West Africa, wherever. Okay, that's that's fair. Share with us, um, because I know you've done some extensive work. You were you taught history um, here in the Virgin Islands, correct? I was uh, at Central High School, and I taught Caribbean history and African history at African Civilization at Central High School. I learned a lot with my class, or class of 75. Um, I learned so much Virgin Islands history, and then I had no idea how great it was, how powerful it was. So we have a tremendous history, and um, we're not aware of it. A lot well, of people are not. Since we're around the time of Transfer Day, which is the 31st of March, let's talk a little bit about that, because I know the, the history is very broad. 
<laughs> so I want to make sure that we are we're clear that the Virgin Islands was purchased, right? Saint Croix was purchased okay. from the French. Um, it was the former French capital. It was the former capital of the French West Indies. De Poincy was the governor, and he had powerful enemies at the court back in France, and they were able to discredit him. He owned the island of St. Croix and had made it the capital, and he turned it over to the Knights of Malta, and he took everybody, all the French people, and they left and went to Haiti. That's how Haiti became the capital of the French West Indies. See, I'm rambling no, that, that's good. What I want to focus on or ask you about is the purchase of the U.S. Virgin Islands, or what's now the U.S. Virgin Islands, from Denmark. Oh, from Denmark. Correct. I'm sorry. No, no, this was no, a, no. This is good stuff. In 1917, the Danish people approached the uh, administration of uh, President Abraham Lincoln about buying St. Thomas and St. John. And... Um, they started in around the Civil War, and it was a 40, 50-year process before uh, the transfer was completed. Um, Denmark was ready. United States wasn't. United States was ready. Denmark wasn't. So it was going back and forth. But finally, in 1917, the islands were purchased by the United States. Why was the United States even interested in the U.S. Virgin Islands, or in the Virgin Islands, I should say? Well, they were trying to get a, well, going back to the Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, all the West Indian islands, except for a few, and Denmark maintained its neutrality. So the, the port was, a, was one of the few places that the um, American ships could come to. They had the blockade that was trying to block the cotton getting out of the South to, to weaken the, the economy of the South so that um, they wouldn't have money, so they had this blockade. But when they needed to refresh, to get water and so on, they would have to sail all the way up to the northern states to do that because none of the Caribbean islands would allow them to to come in. The Virgin Islands did, uh, Denmark did. But they had this neutrality that went back to the days of the pirates because the pirates would sail into Charlotte Amalie, have fun, they'd grog, they'd eat and whatever, and then they go out and start the warfare again. But while they were in St. Thomas, they didn't fight each other. So the islands, uh, St. Thomas had this deep port, and uh, it was going to be able to not only for the Civil War with the refreshing of supplies and so on, but also as a defense for the um, Panama Canal, which you probably can tell me <laughs> a whole bunch of history on that one. Uh, so many West Indians went to the Panama to help build the Panama Canal, and so many people died with the construction of that canal. But it was to defend the um, Panama Canal, and now that the Germans were with these uh, submarines and so on, we needed, the Americans needed a port. Uh, it would help to have a port in okay. the Caribbean. So we moved from the Civil War, because we certainly didn't have a canal yet or a submarine yet in the 1860s. So you you, 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 you raced, the, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> you brought me to the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, that's interesting, because you know, I was not aware about why there was even some negotiation, you know, from the 1860s or whatever, you know, when Lincoln was um, in the House, so to mm-hmm. speak. So that's very interesting information, for sure. Um, so U.S. purchased 
Virgin Islands for 25 million in gold. Um, and for the same reason, essentially, right? For strategic reasons. Strategic reasons. Um, it was St. Thomas and St. John that they were offering. They weren't offering St. Croix because the deal with St. Croix was France had to give permission if they ever, Denmark ever wanted to sell it. So um, St. Croix petitioned Denmark to allow them to join, be part of the sale because they wanted to be part of whatever was being transferred to the United States. It was shortly after the Monongahela was washed ashore in the tidal wave um, and there were some crew members buried in the Catholic Church and at the Lutheran Church in Fredrickstead. Monongahela, what's that, a boat? Monongahela was a boat. It was a, a U.S. naval boat that was outside Fredrickstead Harbor and the tidal wave that came in deposited it right in front of... Um, by the park, by Boro Park. It was, mm-hmm. it was put there. Okay. But the crew members got to interact with the locally, local inhabitants, and everybody became aware that, well, Americans, they don't have tails, they don't have horns, they're, they're, they're regular people. And because of this interaction with the crew members, St. Roy wanted to petition to be included, and they had a referendum um, on St. Thomas, St. All three islands, as to whether or not um, you wanted to be transferred to the United States, there was some concern because of the racial history of the United States that they were concerned as to what would happen to us. But was there much of a difference? I'll be kind. I'll stop there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we can we can fill in the blanks, so to speak. So after the transfer. Do you know, I'm almost positive that citizenship was not conferred at that time. No, it was about 10 years before the uh, people were given U.S. citizenship. So um, if you didn't have some kind of Danish passport or Danish um, documentation, they were without any kind of, they had no, no country, no nothing. They had no nothing, period. And then in 1927, I think it is, or 2527, is when uh, the citizens here, the residents here, got uh, U.S. citizenship. What, what to you, um, Lenny, is the most pressing issues facing the Virgin Islands now? I wish we were more cohesive, more united. I'm concerned about the future. I'm concerned about our ability to defend ourselves. I'm concerned about our ability to protect our food supply. That's what bothers me is the future. Um, we've gone through almost 100 years without a war, a world war. And I think uh, people who have never experienced a war are anxious to think that they can get an advantage by doing something, uh, invading a country or using a nuclear bomb or something like that. And it's... it's I'm, I'm concerned, mm-hmm. and the uh, United States may have their own problems and not really be able to devote a lot of attention to us or in our defense. We don't know. So I, I would be a little bit more comfortable if we could feed ourselves and we could defend ourselves. 
there have been some, I guess, shifts with regard to, you know, locally or demographics. We lost a lot of population after hurricanes Irma and Maria. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite stark how much population has, has you know, left the islands. Um, and there's an influx now of, of people who have come to the Virgin Islands. And I'm wondering what are your thoughts with regard to the shifting in demographics? I don't like it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, because people come in and they don't know what was here before. And to a certain extent, we don't know what was here before, what our history was before. But um, people come with different um, values, different interpretations, and and they they come with their own stuff sometimes, and it's not better, it's not an improvement to what we have, and sometimes we embrace it, we adopt it, or we are compelled mm-hmm. to do it, and um, I don't think that's good. What do you see as the uh, Virgin Islands identity? What 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 speaks to you in that regard? Virgin Islands identity is very, very varied. I'm very proud of um, the athletic ability of of our athletes that go on to do spectacular. We have tremendous um, artists, um, whether it's paint or singing or and so on. We're an extremely talented group of people, athletic and talented and, and gifted. So um, proud of my people. I'm, I'm just, um, they really have some fantastic, when we do well, we do well. And when we do not, we do not. Speaking of talented people, you're a writer as well, correct? I try. Tell us a little bit about your work. What, what, what inspires you in your work? <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> there... Um, I don't know. It depends on, on different things. I, I, what I see, what I feel, what I, something happened. I recently, recently wrote, I shared it with you, it was something on retirement. I joined a gym at the age of 75, and um, Chalo, and it has made such a tremendous change in my life. I wrote a piece about my body didn't know what was going on because... All of these sounds were going on. Uh, the muscular system was talking to the skeletal system. Do you know what's going on? And they asked the brain, and the brain said, the owner's starting to exercise, and they're having a fit at this age, and the stomach got in, the urinary tract got in. You know, everybody's discussing about all these changes, and the endorphins are flying around the body, making all of this noise, and so on. And um, it, it was just, exercise is just such a... Um, it's really a key to the fountain of youth. Uh, it doesn't open the door, but um, at least you have the key. <laughs> so, I like that. that that's, that, that's a good way to uh, bring this conversation to a close. <laughs> okay. On a hopeful sign. <laughs> um, if somebody is interested in reading your work, tell us with the 30 seconds we have left how they can go about doing that. Well, I am published with the um, Writers uh, Circle of St. Croix. We put, did an anthology back in 2020, and um, that's available. And I'm hoping that I can get 40 years of writing um, out in books sometime soon. All right. The books will be available where? Hopefully, on well, let's start in St. Croix. So. Okay. Okay. We'll start here. All right. Excellent. Folks, thank you so much for listening to our show today. It's been a pleasure. 
We were joined today by Lenny Ulmont James, his local historian and uh, Renaissance man, I'd like to say. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Bye-bye. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters.